0: Hey, Cross of Life, this is Pastor Caleb. Uh, Along with the sermon that I preached at Cross of Life virtually, which you have already seen uploaded to this channel on Galatians chapter 6, I preached. To Prince of Peace Lutheran Church in Fairport, New York um, this past weekend, and I preached on 1 Peter 1 22 to chapter 2 verse 3 as part of their God-lived life uh, sermon series. So I figured I would publish that sermon here as well for uh, your edification. <laughs> Would you pray with me? God, as we open your words, speak clearly to your people through me, that my words would be in line with your words, that it would convict us of our sin and set us free by the gospel. Amen. As I said, the sermon text for today is the text from 1 Peter um, that is in your bulletin. I'd encourage you to have that open. Um, At least for the second half of the sermon, we're going to go through this verse by verse. My hope today is that I will introduce to you this series that you're working through, A God-Lived Life, um, give you sort of an overview of what it's about, and then work through the text for this morning. What's unique about being Lutheran? I'm going to assume that most of you here are Lutheran. If you're not... You should be, it's awesome. Uh, but what's unique about being a Lutheran? What makes us stand out in the general milieu of Christianity in North America today? My suspicion is that you would, at least most of you, would give me one of two answers. Uh, some of you would answer something about the scriptures. we love the purity of the scriptures that are preached to us, that we understand those scriptures as the final rule and norm for life and doctrine. If the Bible says it, we believe it. Even if it doesn't agree with our reason or our experience or our tradition. Even if it doesn't make logical sense to me that bread and wine can also be Jesus' body and blood, I believe it because the Bible says it. If my experience tells me that that life is not going well for me and that God must be abandoning me, I don't care because the Bible says that he will never do that. And if my tradition... Or some church council or some pastor or some pope says something that God does or says, but it's not in line with scripture. I don't believe it because scripture is that final rule and norm for life. I think uh, the rest of you would probably answer something like grace alone through faith alone. Right? That God has freely given us his righteousness in the person of Jesus, his death and resurrection with no strings attached. Just to believe it. That everything that you have ever needed in Christ is already yours. Every bit of rebellion you have piled up against God has been completely forgiven. Every bit of perfection that you crave and you know God craves out of your life has been put into you by Jesus. And you can be certain of that because none of it depends on you. It is completely Christ for you. And those would be pretty good answers. I mean, those are the things, at least for me, that stand out as the most unique things about being a Lutheran. But my fear is that because those things are so near and dear to our heart, we almost make them ends in and of themselves. We make them the thing that we come here to do, to be, to get And the unfortunate thing is, while those things are absolutely necessary, and while they are hallmarks of biblical theology and of what the Lutheran Church teaches, there's something that comes after them. To to help you understand this, let me give you an analogy. And please forgive my Canadian analogy, because, well, I figured hockey would maybe resonate with some of you, because the Leafs aren't getting any better, and the Sabres are, kind of, so. What's the point of playing hockey? To score goals and to win the game, right? It's, it's not to skate around on ice with a stick in your hands. Skates are absolutely necessary. You can't play the game without sticks uh, or skates. A, a stick is absolutely necessary. You cannot score goals, which in turn would lead you to win the game, without a stick. But they are not the point in and of themselves. They are absolutely necessary, but they are not the ultimate goal. In some ways, the scriptures and the forgiveness of sins, God's grace to us while absolutely necessary, and without which you cannot do anything worthwhile, are only a mechanism, they are a means to bringing you into what God has called you to be and to do. Maybe to say it differently. Why are you still here? Like, why didn't God take you in your sleep last night to be with him at his side I mean, frankly, if you're looking at it from God's point of view, it would probably be wise to take you out of this world. I mean, all of the righteousness that you need has already been given to you in Christ. We covered that. You have nothing left to earn for God. The only thing you're still contributing by nature to the world is sin. You're just oozing sin on everybody. (laughs) Why wouldn't God say, well, the best thing for him or for her would be to take her or him out of this mess so they no longer suffer and they no longer sin against anybody else? But you're here. Breathe in. Breathe out. The breath of life is still in your nostrils. God's still got you here. Why? Is it because you need to play a few more rounds of golf? There are some shows that you've saved on your Netflix playlist that you haven't watched yet. Or maybe theologically, because you have some righteousness to earn? Absolutely not. It's because God has something that he wants to use you for. And he's given you the scriptures and the forgiveness of sins as that mechanism, that license, that empowerment to go be and do that. Let me try a third time. At our church this summer, we're studying the book of Galatians. If you know the book of Galatians, it is a treatise on the gospel, the full and free forgiveness of God and the righteousness that is ours in Christ. And at the end of Galatians, Paul gives us one of the most famous sections, arguably, in the entire Bible. Um, Even if you didn't know it was from Galatians, you've heard of the fruit of the Spirit, right? Why does Paul use that picture, fruit, to describe what comes from the Spirit? Well, let me ask you, who benefits from fruit? Usually not the tree. An animal or a human being might benefit from the fruit. The seeds that are contained within the fruit might benefit from the flesh of the fruit. But the tree doesn't really benefit from producing fruit. When the spirit enters your life through your baptism and is strengthened by the preaching of the word and the reception of the sacrament, you produce fruit, which is a benefit for everyone else besides you. Or let me say it one more way. When our Lord was on the mount from which he would ascend to the right hand of the father, he said to the 11 guys standing there, go and make disciples of all nations. What do you think he meant by that? Like what did those guys who are standing there, what did they think was supposed to happen the next day, that Friday? I think what they thought was that they were supposed to bring other people along into the same thing that Jesus had brought them along into, a life. A life lived at Jesus' pace, thinking about Jesus' things Doing, of course, amazing and miraculous things. Things that that make your hair stand on end, but also mundane things. Walking down the road, eating breakfast together, trying to find a place to go to the washroom. (laughs) Just the normal things of life. Everything about life they did with Jesus. I can't help but think that that's what they thought when Jesus said to them, go and make disciples. I don't think they thought That Jesus meant, go find some folks to make sure you can gather for one hour a week on Sundays. Oh, and if they give some offerings, that would be great too. Jesus has called us, through the scriptures, through the forgiveness of sins, into a life lived for God. And that's what this series is about, a God-lived life. It's about saying, since I have the forgiveness of sins which empowers me now to no longer live for myself because everything that I need has already been given to me in Christ. And from the scriptures, which give me the truth of what life is like, what sin is, and what righteousness looks like, I am now more well-equipped than anyone else on the planet to live a life of grace and benefit to my neighbor. Now, what I want to make sure I say very clearly because we're going to study this course for the next couple months at your church, is that living a God-lived life is not what makes you righteous before God. That was why that gospel lesson about the Pharisee and the tax collector was read read earlier. The Pharisee, he was doing everything right. He was living a God-lived life, if you want to say it that way. He was giving a tithe. He was taking care of people. But he found his righteousness in those actions. Instead of in the free, full forgiveness of God, like the tax collector did. And so if you're here today and you're hearing me say these things about discipleship and about what it means to live a god life and you're thinking to yourself, oh my goodness sakes, I have lived a relatively apathetic Christian life up to this point, then repent and know you are fully and freely forgiven and that if you would die tonight, you would go to be with Jesus. No questions asked because it doesn't depend on you. But let me guess something. Most of you aren't going to die tonight. At least I hope not, because I'll have to come back and do a whole lot of funerals. So let's assume that that's the case. You're going to live through the night, and Monday is going to come. What then? That's what we're going to talk about. And to do that, we're going to go through 1 Peter 1, 22 to 2, and 2, verse 3. Um, So if you would turn in your bulletins there, we're going to walk through this text together and see what Peter has to say. Peter starts in verse 22 by saying, Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth, so that you have sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart. Notice the progression of thought here as Peter starts this text. He says that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth. That word obey in English is kind of tough because when we think of obey, we think of a parent telling a child to do something and that child complying with the instructions. But the word in Greek is different. It's the word hippokoua, which literally means to, to listen underneath. You can hear acoustic in that word. To listen underneath. In other words, to have something be said and then to say that whatever has been said, I submit to. That is truth. The truth that Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ has come again is what you obey. When you hear it and say, that's true. I believe that. Peter says that that purifies you. Not any number of works, but the very fact that you believe that truth about Jesus. Maybe a different way to say this is something that you parents all know intuitively. You know the difference between hearing and listening, right? You say things and your children will hear those things, but they don't always listen to those things. Peter says here, to those who listen, who don't just let the words wash over their ears, but say, that's absolutely, ultimately, finally, transcosmically true about me and my life. Those people have purified themselves. But then he says that there's a result from that, right? The way that he says it is, now that you have purified yourself by obeying the truth, so that you have sincere love for each other. He says the result of this purification, of this obeying the truth, of understanding the true word of God is that you would have sincere love for one another. The word sincere is literally the word hypocrite with an alpha privative on the front. Alpha privatives are like a negation um, piece in Greek. We have it in English. We might say something is uncommon, right? So it's common, but it's the opposite of common. In Greek, they do it with an alpha privative. They say not hypocritical, a-hypocritical. Why, why do you think Peter would have to say that? Why, why would he have to say that if you understand the truth and you've purified yourself by it in the grace of Jesus, that you would therefore then have non hypocritical faith? Or excuse me, non hypocritical love. I think it's because you can look out at the world and you can see a whole bunch of people who are doing the same kind of loving actions that the Bible prescribes for Christians. They're just doing it hypocritically, they're doing it for themselves. I mean, imagine in your mind, maybe you know somebody like this, somebody who is is generally a pretty good person. Like they're not beating their spouse, They're, they're generous with their children, they're kind to their neighbors, they pay their taxes, whatever the thing is. If they're not doing it from the knowledge of the truth, then ultimately, even though they may not be able to admit it to themselves, they're doing it for themselves. They're doing it to build up their own reputation with their neighbors, to keep their marriage intact, to make their kids like them, to advance in the company, to make more money, to get a reputation in the community, or to simply pat themselves on the back at the end of the night and say, I'm a pretty good person. They're using every single person in their life to build up themselves. They don't love them. They think they do. But they don't. They're using them. So Peter says, if you obey the truth that says that Christ came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for you, then you too will be able to love like that, to not love trying to extract value from one another, to get something out of each other, whether it's acknowledgement or affirmation or love or money or, or some advancement. You don't need to do that anymore. You can sincerely love one another. This is what happens to those who hear the gospel. And so he says, since you have that kind of sincere love, since you can love that way as those who believe the gospel, love one another deeply. And where deeply means to be always concerned with it. Fervency is in this word. That it's not something I do just because I see you on Sunday morning, I shake your hand, smile, and say, hey, how are you? How are things going? But that I care about what's going on in your life day to day, week to week. This is the point of a God-lived life. That when we are set free by the gospel, we have the ability to generously say to every other person in my life, I don't need anything from you. But I have everything to give because Christ has given everything for and to me. Peter gives us some reason for this. Look at verse 23. He says, you have been born again not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. Jesus uses this phrase, born again, right? You know it from John chapter three when he's talking with Nicodemus. He says that no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Peter uses that language, and I think it's so helpful for us because it resets our expectations of our life. Uh, My wife just gave birth to our third child, and uh, he's now almost two months old. And I'll I'll let you know, he really doesn't have much going on in his life right now. He kind of just eats, sleeps, defecates. But as he gets older, he's going to take on responsibilities. He's going to take on goals and aspirations for his life, all sorts of things that are going to get involved with his life. By the time he's my age, by the time he's twice my age, he'll have all sorts of stuff going on in his life. When Peter says and Jesus says that we are born again, what he is doing is he's hitting the reset button on our life. Look, I'm 33 years old. Some of you are twice my age. You've built up all sorts of things in your life. All sorts of things that you care about. All sorts of things that you're responsible for. And and we'll talk about how to be responsible for those things and take care of those things. But what Jesus wants you to see is that at, at a spiritual level, those things don't matter anymore. You have a brand new life that has just started. Whenever you remember your baptism, all of your past mistakes have been washed away in the blood of Jesus, and you rise again as a new person to live a new life. None of those things matter. Not really. Yes, God has given you those as a gift to serve your neighbor, but they aren't where you find your value. But isn't it the case that we do? We find our self-worth, our self-esteem in the things that we can accomplish, the letters we can put behind our name, the amount of digits in our bank account, the way our kids or our grandkids behave, the way that people think about us, what they say about us. If you don't believe me, have any of those things gone wrong recently and it's really hurt you emotionally? It's because we find our value in those things, but what, what Peter says, what God says is that you've been born again. You have a brand new life. And you really have a whole, lot, a whole lot of nothing going on in your life spiritually because Jesus has done it all for you. So now you're free. But he doesn't just say that we're born again. He says we're born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable. And that gives us a trajectory and a, maybe a perspective at which to look at what we do in a God-lived life. Because if you're born only of perishable seed... If you only have your 70 or 80 years, if you have the strength, and that's the end of it, then you're going to set your goals in life based on that premise. So, like, some of you are retirement age. I'm starting to think about what it means to save for my retirement. And what all the retirement calculators will do is they'll say, well, what is the age that you want to retire at? And you put in your age 60, 65, 70, whatever it is. That number that you assume you're going to retire at is based on the idea that you might die at the average age of a person in this country. If you were going to live to be 150 or 250, you probably wouldn't retire at 60 or 65, because you'd have a whole lot of life that you'd have to fill out with finances. But since we kind of all assume we're gonna live to be about 70 or 80, we say, well, 60 or 65, it's a good time to retire. It's a trajectory based on a perspective. But God says you're not that anymore. You're born of imperishable seed. You will breathe your last on this planet. Your synapses will stop firing and your lungs will stop taking in air, but you will not stop being. You will keep on living. In the bosom of Abraham until the last day when your body is reunited with your soul and the resurrection of all flesh, you are imperishable seed. And that should change your perspective. No longer do you have to get things done in your 70 or 80 years things that matter only for this life, but you have the chance to live for something that goes beyond this life. You're saving up for retirement. Let's use that example. It's all well and good to do that. Steward the resources that God has given you. But those things only matter for a little while. When you die, the Proverbs say, every wealthy person gives their wealth away to somebody else. And you may write something in your will, but if... If, it's a big if, they follow exactly your instructions and your will, then maybe that will happen. Your wishes will be wished, or will be followed for a generation. But then your money will go to somebody else. But a life lived for the benefit of your neighbor, and their immortal soul can last forever. That's the perspective Peter wants us to have. And he says all of this happens through the living and enduring word of God. He says that you're not going to find this on your favorite news channel or from your favorite YouTuber or podcaster. You're not going to find this from what your granddaddy or father told you. You're going to find this only in the word of God, which is where discipleship happens. Where those disciples, those 11 who were on the mount with Jesus learned what discipleship means and exactly what they brought to the next generation of disciples, the word of God. Which gives you that eternal perspective and tells you you're not just flesh and bones for 70 or 80 years, but you are an immortal soul bought by the blood of Jesus. And so Peter says, here's what we are to do. If all of this is true, if we have purified ourselves by obeying the truth, if we have sincere love for one another, if the enduring word of God has given us this eternal perspective that our life has restarted in a sense and now we live forever, We are going to rid ourselves of some things, and we are going to pursue some things. So first, what are we going to rid ourselves of? Verse one of chapter two. says, therefore, rid yourselves of all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Did you know that psychologically, um, most people have about the same amount of willpower? I think we don't tend to believe this because we see some people and we see them as disciplined people. They're the people who make the right decisions at the right times, because they've done all the work. And then we see others, we say they're undisciplined. They can't control themselves. And we assume that it's because some people have willpower and some people don't. But it's really not the case. And what the people who study this will say is that the difference between somebody who seems to be disciplined and somebody who seems to be undisciplined is not that they have a certain amount or lack of willpower, but that they have made decisions before those tough moments come to rid themselves of the opportunity to be dumb. These are the people who pour out the alcohol in their basement so that they don't drink alone. These are the people who put time limits on their phones so they don't scroll mindlessly. These are the people who move their computers to the living room so they don't go back to pornography. These are the people who make sure there aren't any snacks in the pantry so they don't eat something that they don't want to eat. These are the people who put their shoes and their socks and all of their running gear outside, outside of their room so that the first thing they see when they wake up in the morning is their workout clothes so they'll go on a run. It's about making the right decision before the moment comes. Ridding yourself of the opportunity to be done. That makes you a disciplined person. This is exactly what Peter says. He says, rid yourself of these things. Rid yourself of the opportunities to do these things. Discipline yourselves to not have those opportunities. You now, it's interesting to me that the word disciple and discipline are essentially the same word. Right? Like I said, those, those 11 guys on the mountain, what did they hear when they heard disciple? They didn't hear. Mediocre church attendance. They didn't hear. Mostly living a North American. Upper to middle class lifestyle. But but also checking Christian. On my census form. They saw discipline. In what it meant to be a disciple. And discipline is going to mean. We're going to have to rid ourselves of stuff. And that's hard. Because you as well as I. Want to live. In this affluent country that we we get to share we want to live the lifestyle that is advertised to us whether by tv or our phones or just our perception of the world we want to live that life but if we're going to be disciples we we just simply can't it's going to look different for each person but maybe if i can give you a general principle to think about if you're not ridding your life of something in order to be a disciple of jesus i don't think you're a disciple you might be saved. Again, if you died tonight, you're not going to heaven because you're living a discipled life. But if you want to be a disciple, if, if you want to follow what God says in His Word, if you want to live from the grace that God has given you, then you're going to have to cut yourself off from stuff. From stuff. Excuse me. From some stuff. It might mean looking back at your budget and saying, "I can't spend as much on that," because the work of the church, the work of our missionaries, the work of our church body is more important might be looking at your your schedule and seeing the amount of time that I spend on those things that don't add really any value to my life or anyone else's life, I gotta cut those out. I don't know what it's going to be for you, but we all ought to think this way. That if we are not willing to discipline ourselves, we're not disciples. We might be saved, but we're not living a God-lived life. So Peter says that we rid ourselves of something, but then we also Pursue something, we crave something. Verse 2 of chapter 2 Like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. So often when I hear this text, I hear, like newborn babies, crave sp- pure spiritual milk, and I think, well, I just need to hear the gospel. That's the point. And again, it is. But it's for a purpose. You crave that pure spiritual milk of the undiluted 200 proof gospel for you so that by it you may grow up. A question, what what does it mean to grow up? Some of us are still figuring that out. (laughs) I'll define it this way. To grow up means to increase in capability and responsibility. It's a pretty good definition. To grow up means to increase in capability and responsibility. And what Peter is telling us is that as we hear the gospel, its effect on us should be that we grow in capability and responsibility in our spiritual lives. Kids live for themselves, but adults live for others. Those who are immature cannot think past the end of their nose, but those who are mature see a broader perspective may ask you, is the gospel doing this for you? Is it leading you to see your neighbor as the one whom you are living for? Or is it a license for you to live for yourself and say, God will forgive me next Sunday? If we understand the gospel as the pure spiritual milk that it is, does it not make our eyes turn from our own navel to our neighbor to see what a life of love would look like for them? And so Paul—excuse me, Peter finishes this by saying, You crave this pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. It's interesting to me that he uses the word taste. Because he could have used any number of other words and we would have all nodded our heads along with him, right? Now that you have believed that the Lord is good. Now that you know that the Lord is good. Now that you have seen that the Lord is good. But he says, now that you've tasted that the Lord is good. Why do you think he uses that metaphor? I think for a couple reasons. First of all, to taste something, you have to be willing to let it affect you. You have to be willing to let it get close. It's the difference between going to a restaurant and seeing something on the menu and ordering it and then sticking your fork into it. You can know conceptually what it tastes like. Someone can tell you it's salty or spicy or sweet. But until you actually let it touch your tongue, you don't know what it tastes like. Let me ask you, is the word of God something you taste regularly? Do you let it get close enough to you to affect you? To say it differently. Whether you like it or not, if you drink alcohol, it's going to affect you. It's going to go into your body and it's going to do something. Does the word of God do the same thing for you? Or is it something you keep on your plate? You say, I know what that's made of. I know what that smells like. I know what it looks like, I know conceptually what it tastes like, but I haven't let it go in my mouth. And then secondly, does it taste good? Some of us have tasted the word of God and we have tasted bitterness, resentment, frustration because we have been taught that what it means to be a good Christian is to do all the right things. And we know, that's not me. As much as I try, as hard as I work, maybe as much as I even discipline myself, I can't be perfect. Not like God demands. The Lord is good because the work necessary for your salvation and the empowerment to make you a blessing to other people has all been Christ's work from beginning to end. It's not about you. It's about him. That is how good the Lord is. So let me finish with two thoughts then today. Uh, One of them is from Martin Luther, and uh, another one is is from another uh, more modern pastor. Martin Luther has this great quote. When I read it, it, it instantly changed my perspective and has stuck with me. And if you want to get something tattooed on your thigh this week, maybe this is what you're going to get. He writes We are Christ's with and without the apostrophe. We are Christ's with and without the apostrophe. You understand that quote? On the one hand, we are Christ's with the apostrophe. We belong to him. We are his possession because of the sacrifice he was willing to make for us. Our status in the family is unquestioned because it does not depend on us. It completely depends on Christ for us. And we are Christ's without the apostrophe. Like the front of your bulletin, and I believe also the back of your bulletin says, Christians are little Christ's. They walk around in the world representing the one who died and lives for them. To say it maybe differently, you know how Christ gets his work done in the world? It's not from booming voices from on high and lightning bolts from the sky. It's from the hands and feet and mouths of ordinary people like you and me. When every Bible-believing church that prays the Lord's Prayer prays, Give us today our daily bread this morning. God's going to answer that prayer. But he's not going to answer it by zapping bread onto people's plates. He's not going to answer it by putting money magically in their bank accounts. He's not going to do it by just showing up by himself in the flesh again to love a person. No, he's going to do it through the hands and feet and mouths of people. You are Christ, without the apostrophe. And so if you're wondering particularly what that looks like for you, then here's the quote I want you to walk home with. What would Jesus do if he were you? Jesus is not you, and you are not Jesus. Both on a a theological level, of course, and and then also on a a physical level. He was a Jewish man, poor, living in the Middle East 2,000 years ago. So far as I can tell, none of you are that. So what would Jesus do if he were you? He was a man. Some of you are not. He was poor. The majority of you, I think, are not. He was educated in certain schools that none of us have been educated in. He had a certain way of existing in the world, how he got the things that he wanted to get done, done is different from our way. He was never married. Many of you are. He never had children. Some of you do. He only lived to be 33. Some of you are older than that. But Christ lives in you. Christ's given you the personality and the skills and the resources and the station in life to be who he wants to be to the people around you. So what would Christ do if he were you? That's a good place to start in thinking about how to be a disciple and how to live a God-lived life. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for these unbounded resources of your grace and the truth of your scriptures, which orient us away from ourselves and toward our neighbor. And I ask that over the next couple months as Prince of Peace studies what it means to live a God-lived life, that you would work by your Holy Spirit to rid us of all the things that entangle us and the sin that so easily distracts us from loving our neighbor and to empower us with that freeing message that everything that we need, we already have in you, and so we are free to give to everyone else. We ask these things in your name. Amen.